Welcome to Tax Notes Talk, a podcast from Tax Notes, the leading source of tax news, information, and analysis. Welcome to the podcast. I'm David Stewart, Editor-in-Chief of Tax Notes Today International. This week, your tax proposal will arrive in three minutes. As the OECD and policymakers around the world grapple with the question of how to update tax rules to address the challenges of the digital economy, Uber, the San Francisco company known for its ride-sharing platform, has offered its own proposal on taxing digital companies. Joining me now by phone is Uber's Vice President of Finance, Tax, and Accounting, Francois Chadwick. Francois, welcome to the podcast. Great to be with you. Hope you're having a good day. Thank you. Now, actually, before we get started, could you tell me a little bit about yourself? Like, how long have you been with Uber? So, I've, actually, I've been doing tax for over 25 years, and I've been with Uber for nearly four years, three and a half years. But prior to actually being an FTE, I was one of their advisors. So I've actually been with Uber in some shape or capacity since May 2011. So I've seen a lot of change and I've seen a lot of growth here at Uber. Now, we're going to get into this proposal that you've written about. But before we get there, I'd like to discuss it for background purposes, a little bit about how Uber itself is structured using the current international tax rules. Yeah, absolutely. So we are actually in over 63 different countries right now. In every country that we operate in, we actually do have some form of physical presence. We have offices there and people there. So we do have a an actual presence in every single country. We do actually file tax returns in every single country. We have a principal holding company in the Netherlands that actually is fully operational, which owns our intellectual property for the rest of the world. There's over about a thousand employees sitting there in the Netherlands. So it's a fully functioning principal global holding company, operating company and subsidiaries around the world. Those subsidiaries are compensated in various different uh, ways depending on their operations. Some of them are compensated on sort of a standard cost plus markup with others also being compensated on some form of operating margin. So we have a bit of a mixed bag across the world. Now, the concerns about how companies in the digital economy are being taxed are widespread and varied. What do you see as the main concerns that need to be addressed by the OECD and other policymakers? Well, I think the main concern sort of stems from the notion that a business is able to operate in a country without any form of physical presence. And the whole way of doing business has become much more digitized. And the current tax framework, which, which, you know, is based on principles, but has some catching up to do with the way digital businesses and digitized businesses work. I think the current framework doesn't address currently the notion that you can enter a market without having some form of physical presence presence in that. And there is a belief that that leads to some form of maybe non-taxation for having market access rights to get to individuals in a particular jurisdiction. And I think that is what the OECD is looking to address to be able to maybe, say, placate some of those political concerns about having access to a market uh, with no taxing rights attached to it. Now, the OECD is due to produce its final report in 2020. Are you seeing any ideas from the OECD's proposal that might improve on the status quo? Yeah, I actually do. I think the OECD is pushing along at a steady pace as well and bringing in numerous parties to talk about it. You have the 129, I think maybe maybe 130, 129, 130 member countries that are actively being involved in this and they're all coming to the table. But you're also starting to see a lot of commentary and input from various different companies, ourselves included. And I do 
do believe there is enough of a momentum to at least push forward the discussion and hoping that we get to some global consensus within 2020 on a path forward. Do you see any chance that the ultimate path of the OECD might create more issues than it's solving, or do you think that this will get to an improvement overall? Well, I think there's going to be multiple issues that are going to need to be addressed along the way. As you look at any of the proposals that are out there, including our own, there's numerous design features that are going to have to be addressed, both in the calculation, also looking at you know, the double tax treaties and things like that. So we can't avoid a situation, in my mind, we cannot avoid a situation where the design details are going to have to be addressed. But at the same time, you know, the hope is and the need is to come up with a solution that can stand the test of time going forward and doesn't just create another round of issues such that we can avoid a BEPS 3.0 as we work through this BEPS 2.0. And I guess another sort of issue that that's out there at the moment, while the OECD is trying to come up with a consensus solution, are countries moving forward with unilateral measures. Lately in the news, France's turnover tax of 3% has been widely discussed. Are these unilateral measures from member countries helping or hurting the efforts of trying to find a consensus? I would say with respect to the unilateral measures, I, I do believe that they actually create a lot of uncertainty and a lot of complexity for the various companies around the world that get caught by these rules. And that can create some level of, whether you wish to call it confusion or frustration. Our belief is that countries should continue to work closely with the OECD to find a global consensus approach. Support for this podcast is provided by University of California, Irvine School of Law Graduate Tax Program. Here at Tax Notes Talk, we love to discuss the major issues in taxation, but we can only do so much. If you want to learn more than we can teach you here, our sponsors may have the right program for you. The Graduate Tax Program is a one-year, full-time program offered at the UC Irvine campus. It's ranked as the number one graduate tax program on the West Coast. All members of the founding faculty have practical experience and have significant experience teaching in other graduate programs. The program boasts a small student-to-faculty ratio to ensure that students get the attention they need to succeed in their studies and in their careers. For domestic students and U.S. permanent residents, the deadline to apply is April 1st, 2020. Non-U.S. students must apply by February 1st. Apply today. Visit law.uci.edu slash gradtax. That's law.uci.edu slash gradtax. Now, as we were preparing to have you on, we posted out to Twitter and asked people if they had any questions for you. And I think this question fits in sort of with this line of discussion. Tom O'Shea asked about your thoughts on the EU's approach using a digital presence concept for permanent establishment. Yeah, so I can understand that notion of the digital presence, and it sort of captures my earlier thoughts about the need for this new form of international taxation, where there could be no physical presence in a country. If we go and look back at the article that Uber authored, and you look at step four, where we're talking about allocating some form of taxable MIP, the market intangible profit, we do talk there about determining the market source net revenue and how to determine nexus. In the actual article, we use a figure of 25 million. So if there's some market sourced revenue to a particular market jurisdiction that in our example is greater than 25 million, then that we we would propose creates that presence. Looking at the EU proposal, I think they have sort of three types of digital presence. One, they use 
something similar to it. I think it's a lower figure than 25 million, but some dollar figure that is attributed to a market where you have no presence, then that would create a significant digital presence. They also used a couple of other formulas, including number of users or number of contracts. I think those ideas would have to be dug into a little bit more because you'd want to know if those activities are actually creating some form of revenue. And if they are, then maybe that is another way forward. But those are things which I view as sort of the detailed pieces of how to create a nexus. But one thing that we always must ground ourselves in is that any form of taxation in any new regime should be based off of sort of a taxable profit. And no taxation should be created just by virtue of having some form of presence that's not creating a profit. All right. Now, you alluded to some of the concepts in the article that you wrote and your proposal. So let's turn to that. And how does the basic structure of your proposal work? So at a high level, this is a sort of a top-up or reallocation tax. So the first step, and the one that's very important, is to understand that current arms-length standards and transfer pricing rules and regimes, they should stay in place. So you should still look through the current process to understand what each entity within a company should be allocated based off current transfer pricing rules. You then take this new set of rules that we are proposing. Firstly, you've got to look at this on your worldwide audited financial statements. So we're doing all of this based off global numbers, not country by country numbers. And what you do from that is you look at that and you work out your worldwide profit. From that, you strip out an amount of routine profit. And we've used 4% of sales or 15% of depreciable assets. We say that that's routine and that should not be reallocated anywhere. After we've done that, what we've done is we've sort of inversed the calculation. So with what's left, which is the residual profit, from that strip out what we call the product intangible profit. And we're saying that should not be reallocated because any sort of profit that's attributable to the a PIP, the product intangible profit, we should say, we're arguing should stay in the location where those activities are actually being undertaken. And we came up with a table that shows how to calculate the PIP, but at a high level, it's based on the more R&D that you do, the greater the amount of PIP. And so we undertook, and, and I should say we undertook for every number that's in our proposal, we undertook benchmarking analysis and looking at various comparables to come up with these numbers. So once you've stripped out your routine profit, once you've stripped out your product intangible profit, we're saying you're left with the market intangible profit. But then we take a pause there and also say, well, not all of that market intangible profit should be reallocated to the market jurisdiction because you still have DEMPI functions in various places that are going to create some of that market intangible profit. And that should only be allocated to the place where those DEMPI functions are being undertaken. Now, in order to simplify the mechanism, what we then said, instead of doing some other form of transactional transfer pricing work on that, we just then did an analysis on franchise type agreements to look at within those agreements, what range of profit is allocated to market jurisdictions. Under the benchmarking from those franchise arrangements, we found a midpoint of around 20% was allocated to the market jurisdictions. So in a simplifying measure, we then said, once you've stripped out your routine profit, once you've stripped out your product intangible profit, you're left with your market intangible profit, and then 
allocate 20% of that market intangible profit to the market. And if we just stop there, and as I've mentioned before, you would allocate that market intangible profit, that 20%, to the market jurisdictions based off the nexus thresholds that are in the article. But if you just stopped there, you would end up with some form of double taxation. So you have to take it that next step further and have some countries be the surrender countries. They're the ones that would look to be able to get a deduction for the amount that's allocated to the market jurisdictions. And at a very high level, we're saying that the countries that have any form of residual profit under the current transfer pricing regimes over a particular percentage point, those are the ones that would actually be the surrender countries, such that you would avoid this double taxation. And that's said at a very high level. And there's a lot of nuance in the document, but hopefully that's able to convey it in the four or five minutes. Yeah, that's a great explanation. Now, do you have any concerns that, let's say this proposal were adopted, if it doesn't shift enough taxable profit to market jurisdictions that we'll be right back talking about this again in a couple of years? I think that is a question that could be asked of any proposal. And that is one where I believe we've got to have the policy and the political will to come to the table and understand that you do need a principle-based approach. You do need something that we could point to that has um, underlying grounded principles and address what is the current concern and understand that there will be companies and countries, some will gain and some will not gain, but this should be be a, a step in the right direction. And what we want to avoid, as I think I mentioned earlier, is a BEPS 3.0, where we're just using arbitrary figures to address something in BEPS 2.0, and countries decide they don't like that, and then roll forward and start to make additional changes. So I think grounding something in principle in this round of discussions is the most important thing. Now, is there any assistance to, let's say, developing countries who currently already have some difficulty administering transfer pricing rules, since this seems to lay on top of existing transfer pricing rules? Understandably, it does. I think one of the things that we've been able to do with our proposal is run it through and capture it all in an Excel spreadsheet. And once you actually digest it, this a little bit more and go through it, it is pretty simple to undertake. It is formulaic, and the hope is that as it's so formulaic with that's still grounded in principles, it is formulaic. It should be somewhat easy to adopt uh, companies and countries to be able to comply with. Now, I guess the other question that springs to mind from this, as a proposal coming from a digital company, how would you respond to people who might say that your structuring of this proposal could be self-serving to Uber's arrangements? Yeah, I mean, this proposal and what we've put forward, it reflects the company's desire to lean in and to work constructively with stakeholders, and that's governments and the business community alike. And what we're looking to do is modernize the current system for the realities of business in the 21st century. And understandably, we know our business very well, and we understand from all the discussions we've had with policymakers and politicians what they're looking to address. And we believe that this does address those concerns at the same time as sticking with a number of current principles around transfer pricing and the arm's length standard and is formulaic. So we have spent a lot of time looking to thread a needle to address all input and concerns from the various constituents around the globe. Your proposal was published on August 19th. Have you received any feedback on it since then? 
Yeah, I've received and we've received quite a lot of feedback. But prior to even publishing this article, there were numerous meetings we had with various policy makers, politicians, governments, authorities, Ministry of Finance and other companies. And we actually took a lot of feedback in prior to actually publishing this article and into consideration as we were designing this proposal. So, and also subsequent to the publication last week or so, we've received a lot of feedback as well. And I would say 99% of it as being positive. A lot of people have digested the article, they understand it, and sort of the recurring theme and the sort of the positive feedback that we've been receiving is the fact that this is one of maybe the more detailed articles or thought pieces on how a proposal could actually operate. This is one of the things we really want to try to do is move it from the theory into something that could be operationalized. All right. And lastly, I have one question that's a little bit separate from the main issue here, which is about income taxes. And I wanted to ask about consumption taxes, including like value added taxes and such. A lot of jurisdictions have been grappling with how to treat platforms like Uber and marketplaces where you have one provider connecting a bunch of individual service providers and customers and not being able to collect consumption taxes for maybe threshold reasons. Does Uber have a position on efforts to change consumption tax rules to make the platform like Uber responsible for collecting consumption taxes? So what I would say with respect to that is we've been having for the last four plus years numerous discussions with policymakers and ministries of finance around the world as they actually do look to implement various different VAT rules or consumption tax-based rules. And quite often what actually happens is we are spending a lot of time explaining how the platform works, explaining how the business works, so that as they look to introduce particular new tax regimes or tax rules, that they're able to recognize how we operate such that their rules can actually meet their expectations. So we actually do lean in on those discussions as well. And I just round that out as well by saying we're also having various discussions with the OECD about data exchange and being able to provide information such that both our tax liabilities and tax responsibilities, but also the people that are on our platform and looking at how we can bring everything into the, the next round of compliance, both for, like I say, for us and for everybody else. So we're very open and we do lean into those discussions. Have the discussions included basically aggregating the individual service providers thresholds so that, for example, if one driver doesn't meet the VAT threshold, they don't have to collect VAT, but collectively the group does meet the threshold. Has Uber been discussing maybe changing the rules so that Uber's threshold matters rather than the individual drivers? We have been having those discussions. And the one thing that we always do point out, though, is that there's no reason for there to be any specific Uber-type legislation. What we look for is legislation or changes in rules that would apply across industries. And when we have those discussions, all tax jurisdictions and treasury functions understand that you cannot have and should not have specific company rules, but you can have rules that could address a broader group of companies or a population of companies. Well, Francois, this has been a fascinating discussion. I thank you very much for being here. Very much appreciated. Thank you. If you want to learn more about Uber's proposal, you can find a link to Francois' article in our show notes. And now, coming attractions. Each week we preview commentary that will be appearing in the Tax Notes magazines. I'm joined by Content and Acquisitions Manager Faye McRae. Faye, what will you have for us? Thanks, Dave. In Tax Notes Federal, Peter Merrill, Carl Russo, and Aaron Yungay 
analyzed the legal and economic questions around implementing a unilateral or multilateral foreign minimum tax. David Michaels contends that the IRS's per-account interpretation of the FBAR penalty provisions does not hold water given the plain language of the Bank Secrecy Act. In Tax Notes State, Dan Bucks discusses Wisconsin's subsidy deal with the international tech giant Foxconn. Elise McLaughlin and Kathleen Quinn focused on the New York State Tax Department's proposed sourcing of receipts from investment advisory or investment management services provided to passive investment customers. In Tax Notes International, Emilian Labas discusses the European Commission's state aid investigation of McDonald's and assesses the effect of subsequent Luxembourg and U.S. tax measures and U.S. holding and financing branch structures. Members of Ulhoa Canto Advogados argue that Brazil's longstanding income tax exemption for donations and inheritances remain in force for both resident and non-resident recipients. And on the opinions page, Robert Goulder examines Uber's proposal for a new international tax system, and Nana Amasarfo looks at whether aviation eco-taxes make sense. You can read all that and a lot more in the September 2nd editions of Tax Notes Federal, State, and International. That's it for this week. You can follow me online at taxstew, that's S-T-E-W. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for a future episode, you can email us at podcast at taxanalyst.org. And as always, if you like what we're doing here, please leave a rating or review wherever you download this podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Notes Talk is a production of Tax Notes. You can learn more about us by visiting www.taxnotes.com backslash products. When major media wants the straight story, they turn to Tax Notes. Thank you for listening, and join us again for another edition of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Analyst Inc. does not provide tax advice or tax preparation services. Nothing in the podcast constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice. A full disclaimer is included in the transcript.